independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content and potentially join our Green Dreamer network as well, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Creating things ethically, creating things slowly is such a compelling story. And if you can tell the story of how this, you know, being a part of this, this weaving collective is changing this community's life, how much more would you want to buy into that than just saying like, oh, here's some cool guy in Europe who like designed this pair of pants. That was Whitney Bauck, the associate editor of Fashionista, who is making her second appearance on Green Dreamer in this episode. She was previously in episode 129, if you'd like to go back and listen to that later if you haven't already. But this episode here is a really special one because as I conducted this interview, I was actually being filmed for a documentary series by The North Face and REI in partnership with National Geographic. The series is called Rewind Nature and it spotlights changes makers who are taking a step forward to reverse the damage we've caused to our planet. It was a huge honor for me to have been a part of that and one of the coolest projects I've ever worked on. So if you get the chance, I'd love to invite you to check it out as well and let me know what you think. To watch the documentary series, you can head to natgeo.com slash rewindnature and you'll be able to see me in episode two. Now, if you're relatively new here from the documentary or elsewhere, I'd like to extend my warmest welcome to you. I'm so excited to have you and look forward to learning from our incredible range of guests with you. Because it can be hard to know where to start with over 170 episodes waiting for you, I created a starter guide just for you so you can get my top suggestions on which must-listen episodes to listen to first. To get this starter guide, you can head to greendreamer.com embark. For now, though, on to our episode today, where we're going to explore what fast fashion is and how it came to be, how social media has influenced our levels of consumption and our consumer choices, how our consumers' culture relates to our collective mental health, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Fast fashion is a term that people within the industry and within the space are already very familiar with. But for our listener who may be totally new to this, I'd love to go back to the very basics. So what exactly is fast fashion and how does it differ from traditional fashion? Fast fashion is basically a term that's used to describe a fashion industry moving at increasingly quicker and quicker paces. And to some degree, it's 
actually a, a little bit harder to define than it seems because it has a kind of long history. So it goes all the way back to the 1800s and you can sort of chart the the fashion industry beginning to move faster and faster with first the patenting of the first sewing machine in the 1800s and then after World War II when there was a lot of fabric rationing and it was sort of streamlining the way clothing was made that sort of made people used to buying clothing that was pre-made in a way that it hadn't been before and then even after the war was done and all of the rationing was done people were still more open to buying that way so it actually has these sort of historical roots and things that weren't really about trying to increase consumption at all. But what it's become today is we have these huge multinational corporations that are churning out clothing so quickly that it's really become like a disposable item, almost like a napkin where you wear it once, you use it once, and then you throw it away or get rid of it. My understanding is that fast fashion kind of flipped the fashion cycle. So Traditionally, designer brands may start with the design and then think about how they're going to manufacture it and then ultimately lead to the consumer in the end. But fast fashion really starts with looking at what consumers want, and then it's based on feeding consumer desires rather than elevating, I guess, a designer's vision, just that in of itself. To some degree, that is absolutely right. I mean, I think the other sort of heartbreaking thing about fast fashion is that it's still sort of draws from and even preys on designers who are putting a lot of time and effort into making their work. And it might take them a year or six months to come up with a collection. And then a fast fashion brand can come along and sort of knock off a cheaper version of it that's available in 13 Mm. days or something like that. So it sounds like there's really been a devaluing of design and art and also less appreciation for that whole process. Absolutely. It's a devaluing of the art and it's also a devaluing of the amount of labor that it takes just to manually make the clothing and to weave the cloth and to cut it and to transport it because those all involve human hands too. It's not just the designer. So the fast fashion business model, I feel like really started taking off in the 1990s or the late 1990s. So in a relatively short amount of time, it's really risen to the top to dominate and disrupt the fashion industry. What do you think it was both from the production side and the consumer side that allowed fast fashion to really thrive? It's kind of tough to pinpoint that. In some ways, as companies found ways to make things cheaper and cheaper, they were both sort of feeding into consumer demand and creating it. And then once there was more consumer demand, it made sense for companies to keep producing more and to find ways to make it even cheaper. And part of what you've seen through that is fashion moving from being basically just a, a like a necessity and being something like food or shelter to being almost more of an entertainment industry than a consumer good where mm. fashion shows are something that we look at almost like we look at reality TV and there's sort of performance to it that's less about meeting needs and more about entertaining ourselves. That's an interesting point that clothing used to be about serving our basic needs. And now it's really feeding our endless and insatiable desires to have more. Yeah. And I think there's positive things about fashion being more than just about meeting a very basic need. I think there are beautiful ways that you can use fashion to tell stories and to communicate heritage and to pass on tradition. And I don't think that it's like all fashion is bad or all all uses of clothing that aren't just utilitarian are bad. 
But I think we have to be very, very careful about what we let our intentions become when we're getting dressed and when we're shopping and when we're making clothes. Mm. So at the heart of all of this, for us as consumers, why do you think we're so hungry for constant novelty and want to constantly have new clothes and really feed into the fast fashion cycle? There are so many ways I could answer that. I guess <laughs> one of the things I've been thinking about recently is I was reading about how in many ancient cultures, there was sort of two different ideas of time. So there was ordinary time and there was sacred time. And ordinary time is where you lived most of your life and sort of you're going about your day to day. And sacred time was sort of the the space in which transformation could happen and the space in which revelation could happen and deep connection could happen. And we sort of made time, sacred time, through our rituals and through our religious services and through our sort of family traditions. And increasingly, I think the way that we consume our goods and the way that we consume our social media, we're, we're pushing out any sort of time to be meditative or to be reflective or to be really fully present. And that absolutely impacts how we consume. I, I just think we're not giving ourselves space to be in full ways. And we're so distracted that we'll sort of take any little bit of joy or pleasure wherever it comes, even if the ultimate impact of that, like shopping fast fashion, isn't going to be great. So it's kind of like because we don't already feel full and we feel like there's a void, we turn to consumption and the ongoing purchase of new things to bring about little bursts of joy that really don't last and aren't aren't as deep and meaningful. Yeah, it's like when you're like stuck in the car and you know you're going to you're going to go have like a meal later, but you're just so hungry. And the only thing you have is like candy. So you just keep eating it, even <laughs> though you know, it's not really what you want. Right. It's just because it's there. And because you like, you are trying to fill an actual void. But the thing that you're choosing isn't going to be the thing that genuinely fills you. Well, last time we chatted on Green Dreamer, you touched on how social media has really changed the way people dress because increasingly we're dressing for the camera. And it's no longer just our public figures and models who are constantly in front of the camera. All of us, essentially, who choose to be active on social media now also face the same social pressures and public scrutiny. So how do you think the rise of social media has impacted our collective fashion consumption rates and consequently our environmental footprint from that? Yeah, I definitely think that social media and the way that we consume are connected. Again, this is not to like bash all social media. I think that it can be a really useful and powerful tool for connection and for education. But like you were saying, we went from having a few people like celebrities um, who are expected to be photographed over and over and over and over. And so they might have had really specialized wardrobes from, for that. But now when we're all sort of living that way, we all feel like we should have those kinds of wardrobes. And it's not just people who like care about fashion. Mm -hmm. I was actually recently on a trip with someone who doesn't work in fashion, who's an NGO person. And we were we were on a trip in an indigenous community in the Philippines. And, you know, we were on the second day of the trip and someone pulled out a camera and she goes, oh, no, like, don't take a picture of me in this. Like, I'm wearing the same shirt as yesterday and it's going <laughs> to it's all going to look the same. And I just thought, oh, man, like people, whether or not they consider themselves fashion people really do feel a pressure to, to sort of have something fresh on all the time on social media. And so that, that 
impacts the way that they pack for a trip or the way that they shop and their expectation that they should always be presented in new clothing. Right. And fast fashion also enables us to constantly have new stuff because the price tag is so cheap that for a lot of people, they don't even think twice about making an impulse purchase. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, increasingly fast fashion brands are making commitments to incorporate more sustainability practices and to be more transparent about their supply chain, especially in the wake of the 2013 Rana Plaza factory collapsing. Do you think that fast fashion with its same pace and mass volume can exist sustainably even with total transparency and with their use of more eco-friendly fibers? I would so love to say yes, but (laughs) I feel like this is the thing. It sort of goes two ways, right? The, the classic argument is that fast fashion can have a bigger impact, even if it's only committing to say, like, we'll buy 10% organic cotton and 90% conventional cotton. Well, an H&M doing that has a way bigger impact than a small sort of sustainability focused brand buying 100% organic cotton. So the, the capacity for one of those huge brands to have a positive impact is, in theory, a lot larger. But On the flip side, like you were sort of referring to, there's just no way, I I truly don't believe there's any way to to claim that you're a a sustainable company if you're continuing to push out new clothing all the time, unless you have found a way to totally close the loop and turn all of your old product into new product or to keep it sort of in use so it doesn't end up as pollution or in landfills. And that's something that a lot of big companies have been latching onto, but it's not something that we currently have possible through the available technology at the moment. So I think it's a little bit of a pipe dream. So right now we have what's called a throwaway culture that's really dominant in fashion, where clothes are seen as disposable. A fast fashion piece of clothing is said to just stay in a woman's wardrobe for about five weeks before being thrown out. So it's all about quantity. And at the same time, beyond fashion, we also have a disposable mindset in other things like single-use items instead of reusable items, single-use plastic utensils, single-use napkins, and so forth. So also all about quantity over quality. And finally, even you know, socially, social media is enabling us to have more relationships, but perhaps each of lesser quality and depth. So I guess how do you how do you think this throwaway, disposable and distracted culture is impacting our collective mental health and feelings of fulfillment, which I believe is what we're truly in search for when we buy into these empty promises of more is better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the studies about millennials and about Gen Z, it's not it's not super encouraging about the effect that sort of think like things like social media have on mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you're saying, when you're spending so much time connecting, quote unquote, connecting online, it can come at the expense of relationships in real life. I mean, they're saying that current teens are spending so much more time at home than going out because they can, they can still chat with their friends at home. And there is some, you know, there are ways that that can be great, but there are also ways in which you're, you're missing out on real connection. So I do think, I do think sometimes that there's like a spiritual void in, especially in Western culture, where it's been so we sort of tried to intellectualize our way out of being whole creatures who have these parts of ourselves that are really mysterious, and honestly, not that logical. And I think that if you're not willing to sort of come to terms with that, you're you're going to run into a lot of really false ways of trying to fill that. And 
And it does cause a lot of pain. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that contribute to a lot of the mental health issues that we see in the US. And I'm not an expert on that. So I won't pretend to speak to that. But I do think that there is a connection between the way that we consume, whether that's physical goods or the way that we sort of consume imagery and stimuli and news and tweets and headlines and sort of our inability to give ourselves real time to just be and to not be putting things in, but to just like sit and sit with our own feelings and sit with our own thoughts and really come to terms with where we are and who we are. So, I mean, do you feel like this is really a vicious cycle then? Because on the one hand, we're we're really entering this throwaway, disposable and distracted culture that is leading people to feel perhaps more empty and more disconnected from the real things that matter. And because we have all this void and perhaps we don't really know the, the healthiest ways to fill that void, we then turn to further consumption to fill that. And then that continues to drive this throwaway culture. So it's it's kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because, again, I do think some of this is is connected to the ways that we have stripped away a lot of the sort, the things that gave people a sense of meaning and connectedness to the universe in the past. But if you, even if you just take like a thoroughly scientific, objectively logical sort of approach to this, there are like studies show that consuming more doesn't make you happy. Mm. (laughs) Even from a purely empirical standpoint, it doesn't make sense to think like, oh, I'm going to consume more and that's going to fill the void. We know that doesn't work, but that we just keep doing it anyway. Right. Well, I mean, to go to the bright side with your bird's eye view of what's been done in this space to go against the grain of mindless fast fashion, what do you think has been happening and what has really worked in slowing people down to encourage people to really savor fashion and connect with the deeper stories behind it? I think that that telling the stories behind how things are made is so powerful and it's so simple and it's it's something that can be kind of easy to take for granted if you spend a lot of time in sort of the ethical fashion space. I think it's interesting to look in particular at luxury fashion because at this point in history, there's maybe two luxury brands who really, truly make things at a level of quality that is unlike anything else. And most of the rest of them, the way that they get away with charging as much as they do is that they just tell really good stories about their mm. brand. <laughs> they create incredible myths around their creative directors. I don't mean this as in they're lying. I just mean it's like they they create they sort of infuse these people with a, a sort of sense of power and a sense of genius that makes the customer want to buy into that. So I think good branding is just good storytelling. It's just good myth making. And <laughs> I think ethics and sustainability are they are good. They don't you don't have to try. You don't need like a team of people to sit around and be like, oh, how do we make this sound good? Like creating things ethically, creating things slowly is such a compelling story. And if you can tell the story of how this, you know, being a part of this, this weaving collective is changing this community's life, how much more would you want to buy into that than just saying like, oh, here's some cool guy in Europe who like designed this pair of pants? Hmm. Well, I guess part of the challenge is also that the brands that have already thrived off of this consumer's culture, they have a lot of financial resources to then get the top talent in storytelling to tell better stories for them. And on the flip side, the brands that are really trying to make a difference may be more strapped in their budget, so they may not be as skilled in terms of what it takes to market their messages successfully to consumers. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a fair point. And that's always going to be something that's frustrating, right? It's like the people who are doing things absolutely right and in the most ethical way possible are usually not going to be the most wealthy because it's really hard to build wealth in that way if you're not willing to exploit anyone. Mm, Right. So I guess to close, in fashion, which is a space that can be rampant with superficiality, um, made-up and impossible ideals of body image and beauty standards, and this never-ending consumerist message, how do you think we can really integrate the values of deeper ethics, meaning, and sustainability, and true appreciation for the art and design of fashion into the DNA of uh, the popular culture within, within this space? I think it comes back to the appeal of having something bigger than just the clothing itself, right? So it's like when you get complimented on a pair of shoes from someone on the street, if they, if you just bought those from a fast fashion brand, you probably don't have much to say about it. They say cute shoes and you say, thanks. <laughs> if you're wearing a pair of shoes that you know about the community in Central America that made them and it's part of a sort of tradition that's been handed down of these cobblers and nearby is the farm where the cattle is raised that is like turns into the leather and here's all of these things. It's, it's, it becomes a conversation starter. It becomes a genuine connection point rather than just sort of a throwaway comment. And to me, that's compelling. And I think people want to be part of something bigger and they want to be part of something meaningful. And if right. you can use fashion to do that and show people that this doesn't have to be just about vanity, this doesn't just have to be about something that's sort of skin deep, but there can actually be something bigger that they can be part of a movement that's powerful and beautiful and really, really needed in a world that's facing serious climate climate breakdown. I think that's compelling to people. And I think it's a, a call to action that is really beautiful. Mm. And I guess for our listener who may be just entering this space of sustainable fashion, what are some action steps that you recommend people get started with? The first thing would be just to to work with what you already have. If you can avoid shopping, do it. Look in your own closet, borrow from your friends, organize a clothing swap. If you absolutely do need something that you don't have in your closet and you can't find through your personal networks, try to get it secondhand if you can. Beyond secondhand, the best option is to be willing to do your homework. Learn about the brands that you're considering buying from and research before you buy. See if you can find things that are made from recycled materials or that support communities that are genuinely in need and are being paid fairly for their work and that are treating the planet well. Before we go into our final five, I just wanted to mention real quick that if you're relatively new to Green Dreamer and would like my guidance on which episodes to listen to first among the many that are waiting for you, you can head to greendreamer.com embark to get my starter guide of our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics, as well as some of my personal favorites. Again, that's greendreamer.com embark. If you've been around a while and would like to become a patron of the show to support this work, access extended content and our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Either way, thank you so much for being here and for your huge heart and dedication. For now, moving on to our final five. Let's power through. What's a book or article that's really shifted your understanding of sustainability? 
This is going to seem a little bit unrelated to sustainability, but Winners Take All by Anand Girad Haradas has really changed the way I think about how we accomplish good in the world mm. and whether or not that can happen through business or philanthropy or government. It really made me feel like there are far more limits to businesses being able to do good than I've thought in the past. And it's it's made me want to engage more in trying to see policy shift, which is kind of funny at a time when I feel like American politics are really broken. <laughs> but it, it has sort of reinvigorated me to say that democracy is worth fighting for mm. and worth saving and not giving up on and that it is one of the best ways to create change that is accountable to the people. What's a product or service you wish existed to help us live more regeneratively, but doesn't yet? I don't know if this is cheating because it's not really a consumer facing thing, but what I really wish existed is either like a, a fund or a subsidy that would help farmers, especially like cotton and wool and hemp farmers and anyone who's farming fiber to switch over to regenerative organic practices because it's expensive to do so, but that's one of the best chances we have of sequestering excess carbon in the atmosphere. Right. Uh, what's a policy or nonprofits work that you feel like can make the most positive systemic impact for a healthier future? Fibershed is an organization in Northern California that's doing really amazing work around carbon positive farming. And I am endlessly impressed with them and their expertise. In terms of policy, I think anything that would incentivize reducing emissions for corporate entities. So whether that would be like a carbon tax or something of that sort, I think would be amazing to leverage in the U.S., um, we actually had the founder of Fibershed, Rebecca Burgess, on the podcast before. So our listener can definitely go back to check it out. You can search for Rebecca in at greendreamer.com to find that episode. Uh, moving on, what do you do or say to yourself when you're feeling burnt out and unmotivated? I think I do less saying things to myself and more seeking other people to say things to me, <laughs> whether that's for me, that could be prayer or that could be seeking out what sort of the wise people in my life that I trust and respect their input because they are usually more able to talk sense into me than I am into myself. Mm. What advice would you give to the you that's just starting out on your conscious lifestyle and purpose-driven professional journey? I think I would say... Your voice is more unique than you realize, and your work is more necessary than you think. So keep going. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say find a way to integrate your thoughts about the way that you treat people and the environment into your work. I think there are some of us who have made it our careers, and I think for a lot of other people, they can feel like, oh, I don't know how... I affect this or how I'm a part of this. And I would just say there's probably a way. Look for it in your own workplace, whatever that is, and see if you can find ways to advocate for that in your workplace, because that's where you spend the majority of your time. And if you can give more time, even in the context of the work you already do to helping make the planet a better place, we are all better for it. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Kamea Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, 
Now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.